All right, let's all turn our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And what we'll do today is we'll use John chapter 4 as a sort of a backdrop for what we're going to look at. Our actual text is going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But what we find in John chapter 4 is we, we have this story where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, woman uh, in the city of Sychar at Jacob's well. And Jesus started a conversation with her about water because, well, he was thirsty and she was drawing water. So that's a great way to strike up a conversation. And then when we get to verse 20 in John chapter 4, this conversation turned to where God should be worshipped. This woman tells um, Jesus that the Jews are worshipping in Jerusalem, and they say that's the proper place to, to worship. And the Samaritans said, well, the proper place to worship God is at Mount Gerizim. So let's read verse 21 there. Verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. So Jesus is telling her, listen, there's no point in debating the exact location where we are going to or where we should worship God because soon, you know, after Jesus' death, burial, and the resurrection, it's not going to matter where you worship him. I mean, um, all of God's true worshipers um, won't, won't worry about a thing like that. You know, we can worship him wherever we are. Look at verse 23. He says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was approaching. And so the true worshipers would not be identified, like I said, by the place where they worship God. But it, they would be identified by how they worship God. Right? The Father is looking, that's what Jesus is saying, He's looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 24. Jesus continues, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you want to worship God, you must worship Him both in spirit and in truth. Right? You can't just worship Him only in spirit. You can't just only worship Him in truth. You need that mixture. You need both of those. So I think before we continue, let's just bow our heads and we pray. We ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we thank You so much. We've, been, we, we've prayed a lot already today and we thank You that we can pray again, that we can come to You at any time and at any place. Lord, will You please guide us today? Please come and show us... Um, What's going on in our own hearts, Lord? Thank you that we have a time where we can just reflect a bit on what's going on in our lives. And Lord, will you please use your word, use your spirit, Lord, to impress upon us exactly what you want us to do about this and what exactly we need to change. Lord, thank you for the lesson that we could already have this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we have your word and thank you that you are with us this morning. Amen. All right, so... I think it's important to understand this fact that Jesus is saying here. When we worship God, God wants us to worship Him both in spirit and truth. In fact, He says we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
So what is that? <laughs> what does that even mean? I think whenever we read the word spirit, our minds just automatically jump to, well, the Holy Spirit, right? But we already get a clue in this text. You know, it's a small, uh, a lowercase s, right? We're not talking about the, uh, the Holy Spirit here. Jesus is talking, uh, to, uh, or talking about the human spirit, all right? Your own spirit. So what he's saying is we need to worship God with the right attitude. All right? With the right attitude. We should, we should do it with feeling. We, th- we should do it with passion. We're sometimes, I think, a little hesitant to admit that our mo- emotions should be involved during worship. And I, and I think it is caused by, by this emotionalism that we see going around, you know, in, in different movements, different churches. And, and you know, we, we think to ourselves, well, I don't want to be like that, you know, because I know they, they're off the deep end, they, they're teaching these false things and what, what, whatever else. And, and, and we're sort of trying to hold ourselves back and saying, no, listen, I'm only sticking to the Bible and that's it. But hang on, God says you must worship Him both in spirit and in truth. Both those need to be involved. Our emotions most certainly will be involved when we worship God correctly. You know, when we talk about worshiping God in spirit, we're talking about a worship that goes much further than simply performing some sort of religious ritual or a religious whatever, you know, at a religious event or a religious place. It's It's a worship that starts, firstly, deep down in your heart, right there in the inner man. That's where that starts. And then from there on out, it flows. It flows from there, right? Um, in a different context, Jesus said, those things which proceedeth out of the mouth come forth from the heart, right? It all starts down here in the heart, and that's, that's what comes out in our, uh, through our mouths, through our actions. That's where it starts. God, God wants us to worship Him in spirit, you remember what Jesus said, what the most important commandments are, right? Firstly, he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. With everything, with everything that you are, you, sh- you, you shall love the Lord thy God. And the second one that he said is equal to that one is love thy neighbor as thyself. But so that means worshiping God in spirit really means to do it with all your heart, Right? with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Well, that's just half of the story, all right? The other half of true worship is to do it in truth. As we, as we saw Jesus said there in John chapter 4, worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what is that? Well, John 17, verse 17, Jesus said there while praying to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. You see, true worship will always, and I say always, revolve around the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture. It will always start there. You know, it is through God's Word that we know things such as who God is, what He is doing in this world, what He is doing with us, what He is doing to us. We, we learn there what He is doing for us. We get to know God's character in His Word We learn about His holiness. We learn about His righteousness, His loving kindness. We learn about His power. We learn about His mercy in salvation. As a matter of fact, we get to to know who Christ is, right? And how He saves us. It is through the Word 
that we understand how and why the unrighteous will be punished by God. We learn how we will be judged, those that are saved, how we will be judged by Him. He explains it all to us. We get to know what He expects from us. And in, the, in this context, we learn how He wants us to worship Him. All right? You, you cannot worship God without the truth of His Word. You can't separate the Spirit and the truth. You need to have that balance right between those two. You always need that mixture. If you only worship God in spirit, then you might be very excited about it, right? Your, your heart may be in it, but there's no truth. And if you only worship Him in truth, well, then there's no heart, is there? Right, there's no, no emotion, no, nothing that moves you, and you will simply be going through the motions day by day, you know, um, doing what you know is right to do, Wow, there's really nothing stirring in your heart, is there? So the balance is off there as well. You must do it both in spirit and in truth. Now with that background, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want to show you some of this in action. In this story that we find here, and I believe it's a very well-known story, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and while you get that, I'll refill. 2 Samuel 6. Now, what we read about here in this chapter is how the ark of God is returned to Jerusalem. You might remember, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the ark of God was first captured by the Philistines after they defeated Israel. And these Philistines put the ark next to their idol, you know, called Dagon, uh, probably thinking that the ark of God would bring them some good luck, right, some good fortune. They wanted God on their side, so they captured the ark. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 5 how God then cursed the Philistines because of all of this. And then the Philistines said, all right, now let's just send this ark back. All right, it needs to go back where it came from. So what they did is they made a brand new cart, brand new cart and, uh, um, to put the ark on. And they used two cows that have never pulled anything before, you know. But I, I think trying to show some respect, all right, because of what, what they've seen or what, what has happened to them. And what God has done. And they basically sent those two cows off pulling the cart all by themselves. And they said, well, this, this cart will find its destination. Um, prob they probably thought it had a built-in GPS. But they just wanted to get rid of this thing as fast as possible. It just needed to go away. And while they were doing that, they were trying to appease God. All right? to, to sort of, in their minds, calm him down. All right? Don't st please stop hurting us. And then we read in 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7. How the ark, what's going on with my mouth? How the ark finally made it into the house of a man called um, Abinadab. And his son, Eliezer, was then appointed to keep watch over the ark. And that's sort of where the story pauses for the next 20 years. That's where the ark was. For 20 years in the house of Abinadab. The ark of God was given to Israel as a symbol of God's presence among them. All right? It, it, um, and while Saul was king over Israel, you will remember Saul was the first king of Israel. Uh, David followed him. But while Saul was king, the presence of God was symbolically removed from Jerusalem. It wasn't there. And it symbolized God's displeasure with Israel at that time. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, 
it says there that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then when, when David became king, one of the first things that he wanted to do is get the ark back to Jerusalem. And by doing this, they were basically saying that they want God with them. They want God's guidance. They, they, they want his presence with them. They wanted his care again. They wanted to walk with him again. And that, that, that was the symbolism of this. And so that is where we join this narrative here in, in chapter 6. So let's read verse 1. You, and you'll want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to go through this chapter a bit. Verse 1, again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio <laughs> went before the ark. Now, before you laugh, you try to say these names, all right? Uh, <laughs> I practiced it beforehand, but yeah. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. So what we have here is... David is getting together 30,000 of the uh, choice men, all right, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. 30,000 is a lot of people, right? That, that's, that's a stadium, basically. But interestingly, uh, well, and do with this what you will, but I found this interesting that when the Philistines defeated Israel, you know, when the ark was captured, 30,000 men of Israel fell at that battle. It's just interesting. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but yeah, like I say, do with, do with it what you will. But we get a little bit more detail about the story in First Chronicles chapter 13, where it quotes David as saying the following, Let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. You see, Saul never, never used the ark of God to seek God's instruction. Not at all. You know, as a matter of fact, he couldn't care less. Um, he, he didn't want the Lord's guidance. He thought to himself that, he, well, he can do all of these things. You know, he'll take the battles. He'll do all of these things. We only read about one time where Saul asked for the ark um, to be brought up. That's in 1 Samuel 14 and verse 18. But even then, when he, when he told the prophet, listen, get the ark, all right? He, he saw the Philistines coming up and the battle is going to start. And he sort of said, okay, never mind. Let's handle the battle. And that's the last time we hear Saul even referring to the ark. He got distracted. <laughs> that makes it look, look like Saul also treated the ark of God just as a good luck charm, doesn't it? Just like the Philistines did. He, he just treated it like that. And, you know, yeah, if it was inconvenient, well, let's leave the ark. You know, we don't need it right now. As a matter of fact, we can tackle this thing on our own. It sounds a lot like people do today, doesn't it? Right? It, it, some of us here are definitely guilty of treating God as a good luck charm. You might not even have realized that you, that you were doing this. Now, in the context of this sermon, we want to talk about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, right? But if you only call on God on those moments when you just need that little push, right? That, that little push, Lord, I really need this job. Please, I know I've been neglecting you. Please just give me this job. Or, please just keep my kids safe, all right? 
Um, that, that's all I need you to do. And then, then you can go your way and I'll go my way. Just, just please do this. Lord, please just help keep the, the, this business's doors open. I really need this income. Whatever it is, you know. If you're doing that, you're not worshiping God in spirit or in truth. Not at all, right? You, you are, as a matter of fact, trying to abuse God. And, yeah, well, God won't be abused, all right? Um, he's, he's not your good luck charm just like the idols that the pagans have. And, and so he won't be abused, not at all. You know, as a matter of fact, he is the almighty God of heaven and earth. Don't try that. And if you're, you've been doing that, it's time to stop, right? It's time to stop. So David, David wanted to worship God. He really wanted to. And that's, that's why he started to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And so... They set the ark on a new cart, it says there in verse 3. On a new cart. It's, it's a cart that was probably never used before. Perhaps they even built it brand new, right? It's, it's coming out of the box. It's still, you know, it has that new cart smell. You know, you know that smell I'm talking about, right? It's, oh, beautiful. So, so this cart looked great. It was perfect, all right? And they, they had Ayu coming, oh, well, going before the ark, and Ozob was bringing up the rear, and that's sort of how the procession started. And you have 30,000 people gathered there. They have this great band, you know, all sorts of musicians playing on music before the Lord. It was a wonderful worship service, if you, if you want to put it like that, right? In, in 1 Chronicles 13 verse 8, uh, we read there also about the story that, that everybody played on their instruments with all their might. They put everything they had into this. You know, talk about worshiping in spirit, right? There's, there's a lot of spirit in there. There was a lot of excitement because the ark of God was coming back to Jerusalem. That was a big deal. So they should be excited. Now look at verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Now hang on a minute. What's going on here? It doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, you have this, <laughs> this, this, this glorious event. Right? So many people coming together to worship God, playing on their instruments. We're bringing the ark back. And then they hit a bump in the road. The ark shakes a little bit because of it. Uzzah just stretches out his hand. He only wanted to steady the ark so that the ark won't fall and perhaps break. or, or anything. He didn't want any damage to come to the ark. And as soon as he touched it, he fell down dead. Just like that. God struck him down. I can just imagine the, the deafening silence that fell over those 30,000 odd people in that moment. Verse 7 says here that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error. God was angry at Uzzah. So what happened? What, what was wrong? You know, what, what was Uzzah's great error that was so great that God just struck him down like that? You see, all of them should have known this actually before this happened. Even though they were excited about bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and the, the fuss they made about it, they were going about it all wrong. All wrong. 
And they, they should have known. You know, God gave Israel very clear instructions who was allowed to carry the ark and also exactly how the ark should be carried. He was very clear about that. In, in Exodus 25, God told them that the ark should have like two well, rings at the bottom and then two staves going through those rings. Those staves were never to be removed. It should stay there. And then the Levites had to carry the ark on their shoulders. As a matter of fact, not, not just any Levite. It was only Levites coming from the sons of Kohath. Right? So a very particular group was allowed to handle the ark, to carry it, and, and to go forth with it. They didn't do this. They put this ark on a cart. Now sure, yeah, it was a new cart. Okay, we read that. It sounds fancy, sounds great. It looked good. God didn't want it to ride on a cart. And they knew that. It, this, this was no surprise. He said that the ark should be carried with those staves on the shoulders of those Levites. So where did they get this idea of putting it on a new cart? You remember what the Philistines did? I told you this earlier. They put the ark on a new cart and it sent it back to, back to Israel. I wonder if they took their cue from the Philistines on, on this. And that's a dangerous thing, folks. You know, when, when the church starts to take their cue from pagans on how to worship God, oh, that's dangerous. But unfortunately, that's exactly what we're seeing going on across the world. Churches are incorporating all sorts of pagan influences into their services. We, we, we see them pulling in all sorts of, quote-unquote, you know, spiritual practices um, that have absolutely nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. They're pulling those things in. They want it to look good. They want it to look spiritual. I mean, if, just imagine, you know, if you, if you watch a movie and they have this spiritual guy, it's most likely some Hindu Buddhist, you know, sitting on top of a mountain somewhere. That's the spiritual guy. That's the idea that people have of what it means to be spiritual. And so they're bringing these things into the church. We have see all these influences coming in from Eastern religions into the church. Those things make you look or perhaps even sound spiritual. You know, people might think, wow, you're so great. You're doing this great thing. But in fact, you're so far away removed from Christianity, it's not even funny. Sometimes Christians take their cue from the culture around them. You see, the world would, would um, tell us, well, it's fine if you're a Christian, have at it. You can be a Christian, be the best Christian you want to be. Just don't talk about it. Just leave me out of it, please. You know, Leave me alone. And so many professed believers have chosen to take that position, to, to go along with that. They would tell you things like, well, I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about religion. Or they would say, well, you know what, my faith a very personal matter. It's between me and God, right? I keep it to myself. I don't want to talk about it. And they say that because they fear a confrontation. They fear because they have some sort of unstable foundation that they've built their faith on, and they're just afraid you might topple that thing. You might overthrow it with a single question. Many people are so insecure in their faith that they only think about it in private if they, if they talk about it perhaps they talk about it but only in private only to my husband or wife or may, maybe to my, 
child on Sunday when I ask them, how was Sunday school? You know, that, that's about as far as it goes. Or they will perhaps say something in church, right? Oh, no, the Lord blessed me, but come tomorrow, you'll, you'll, you'll tell all of your colleagues, well, you know, yeah, I, I am that smart. I really am. You know, I am that good. Um, people will say, well, my faith is personal. I don't want to talk about it. But I'll talk about the rugby. <laughs> I'll tell you everything about that. We can have a confrontation about that because I know that thing. I love that thing. That's something I know well. And you can switch rugby out for anything else. That, that doesn't matter. But folks, if you, if you can just imagine, imagine the apostles did that. Imagine they said, well, my faith is very personal to me. Yes, I walked with the Lord. It was a great time. It's very personal. I keep it to myself. What if they did keep it to, to themselves? What would have happened? None of us would have been saved. Not even one of us. None of us would have been here at all. Instead, the Lord told them, go. Go tell every creature. Tell all of them. And that's what they did. That's why we are here today. There are many believers, folks, that they, they sincerely love God. I don't doubt that. They want to serve Him. They want to worship Him. They want to follow Him. They want to love Him more and more. They want to grow closer to Him. They've got the right attitude, perhaps, but then they have no truth. That's exactly what happened here with the ark and with Uzzah. They had all the good intentions. They wanted to do a great thing for the Lord. That's exactly what they wanted to do. But there was no truth. They, they were going about it all wrong. And many sincere believers have simply been misled on what God's will is. And so what they do is they hold these long singing services. They call it the praise and worship service, right? And they have these long singing services and they, they have this music, great music going on and it's over and over again. Like I say, they, they call that worship. Absolutely, music is part of worship. For sure. Definitely it is. That's not all it is. That's not all it is. Should we not give our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Well, that's worship. That's worship. It's not just singing. But that's what they do. They, they, they think those services are, well, those services count for worship, and that's the only worship. And, but they do that because that's what they've been taught. So when they join those worship services, they love it. They go all out. They have everything in it. They have a lot of spirit, but not a lot of truth. And then they start to include things like strange spiritual experiences. They speak in so-called tongues, something that's completely foreign from the Bible, by the way. The Bible never talks about that, that type of tongues that you see happening in churches um, all over and on TV. It's nothing like that. You know what? I, I saw a poster yesterday for a healing school. A healing school. You know, this, this man and his wife on the poster, um, they, they're probably, I presume, they're going to teach you how to heal somebody like Jesus did. Well, I don't, I don't just presume. To be honest, I, I looked them up last night, and yes, that's exactly what they claim to do. They claim that they will teach you to heal somebody just like Jesus did. How did Jesus do it? He just laid his hands on somebody. He didn't, sometimes he didn't even lay his hands. Sometimes he didn't even see them physically. And he healed them or he, or he raised them from the dead. That's what Jesus did and that's what these people claim that they're going to teach you to do at their healing school. 
You know where I saw that poster? At the hospital. That's irony, isn't it? Right? <laughs> I saw it at the hospital. I call it ironic, you know, because if that man that put that poster on there would rather, instead of wasting his time putting the poster on there for a healing school, just take two hours, go around the hospital, touch every single person, let them be healed and go out of there. If he would just do that, then there's no need for a healing school anymore. There's no need for the hospital anymore. We can close that thing. But they won't do it. Of course they can't. They can't do it. But I'm sure that there's going to be a bunch of zealous Christians, people that really want to follow God, that really love God. They want to draw closer to Him. They want to be useful to Him. They want to, have, they want to bear fruit for Him. I bet a bunch of them are going to join that healing school because they want to follow God. They want to do something for Him. And God only knows what they've been taught there. These people have spirit. They have spirit. Their hearts are in the right place, folks. But there's no truth there. I saw a little boy there. <laughs> Can't shake this. A little boy that um, they're in the hospital yesterday. And uh, something's wrong with his legs and his feet. But parents were there because he had a fever all night. He's four years old. <laughs> you know, if these people could really heal, why don't they show up there? I told my wife this morning that, you know, if, if they had a healing school, okay, great. If you could actually teach somebody to heal like that, great stuff. Then why not post five of your students at the front door of the hospital? And as the people are coming in, just touch them and say, no, go home, go home, go home, you're healed. Can't do that. Can't do that. And they're misleading so many people. And they may be misled themselves. I don't doubt that. There's so much more to worshiping God, folks, than just having heart. Are these people sincere? I don't doubt that at all. I don't. But we must, Jesus said, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. You need to have both. Only then you will be able to please Him. Do you remember what Hebrews said? Hebrews 11 said that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible to please Him. What's the faith? Well, that's the faith that's grounded on the Word of God. That's the faith that we should have. That's what we base our faith on. Without the Word, there is no faith. You know what's strange? You know, when we read the story about the ark in 1 Chronicles 13, you see that David gathered all of Israel together, and among them is specifically mentioned the priests and the Levites. They're there. Those are the guys that, that were supposed to care for the ark. The guys that were supposed to carry the ark on their shoulders. They were there. And they said nothing. They said nothing. They just went ahead with this. At least they should have known. Everybody should have known. But man, you would expect the Levites and the priests to have known. They didn't. They just went ahead. And I believe that God will judge every single pastor, every single teacher, every preacher that misleads people. In James 3, verse 1, you remember James 3, verse 1? It says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Why is that? Well, because as leaders, they should know better. And as leaders, you are teaching 
a bunch of people. Here today, we have one guy standing here in front speaking, and we have, I don't know how many, 80 or maybe 100 people here today. One guy speaking, if I start to mislead you, I'm misleading 100 people. These people are supposed to help to guide believers to worship God, both in spirit and in truth, not with lies, not with good feelings, not with good sentiments, spirit and truth. Look at verse 8. And David was displeased. He was angry because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. That just simply means breach upon Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David was angry at God because God struck down Uzzah like that. For something that was seemingly so small, he just didn't get it. Why would God do something like that? Uzzah was trying to do a good thing. And so gone was all the celebration, gone was all the music, all the fanfare, all of it was gone. David started to fear and perhaps a little bit confused. He asked, well, how shall the ark of God come to me? He didn't know how they can bring the ark to Jerusalem now that this has happened. And if they even should try to continue doing so. He was confused about it. He was probably afraid that more people might die in the process. Perhaps he even feared that he himself might die because of this. It looks like David really didn't understand why God struck Uzzah down. Not at this point. And so they decided to take the ark aside and they took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, as we just read, and it stayed there for three months. What was David doing, doing during those three months? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing. I think David probably went back home Extremely deflated, you know, because he tried to do a good thing and it turned out horrible. Horrible. Somebody died. Somebody lost their life because of this. I think he, he probably kept on trying to understand why all of this had happened. But we don't know. We don't read anything about that time. You know, we, we don't see him asking the Lord for an answer. We don't see him speaking to godly people around him, asking them, you know, why do you think this has happened? Did he keep on worshiping God during those three months? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I do think that this is typical behavior for somebody that really tries, out of their heart, tries to do something good, but then it turns out, Absolutely horrible. And there has been many, many believers that have tried to worship God to, according to whatever it is that they have been taught. Not according to the Word of God, but according to what they've been taught. But then things just don't work out as it had been promised. They don't see that happening. They, they get told that, you know, some people get told that if they give their money to the preacher, just give your money to the preacher, then God will rain down His blessings upon you and you will become filthy rich. 
I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that's, that's more or less what's, what the message is. When instead, those false teachers are the ones that become filthy rich because they are robbing people of their money with their nice words, right? The unfortunate thing is we see this, I want to say especially all over Africa, but you see it all over the world that these people are robbing the poorest of the poor and they are profiting off of their backs by this lie. You better believe God is going, God is going to judge them. They get told if they just, just have enough faith, God will heal them from their cancer. He'll take it away. Just have enough faith. And God never promised anything like that. He might heal you, all right? He might choose not to for whatever reason. But He never promised that He's going to take all your illnesses away. You know what He did say in His Word? <laughs> the wages of sin is death. Everybody's going to die. It's appointed unto every man who wants to die. Everybody's going to die. So <laughs> at some point you're going to die. He didn't promise to take away the sickness. And then when that cancer never goes away, people start to question, why, why? Why not me, Lord? What's wrong with me? And then they go to that preacher, they ask him, what's, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why doesn't God love me anymore? And they would say, oh man, sorry, you, you just didn't have enough faith. <laughs> that judgment day is going to be terrible. I'll tell you that. You know, something else that I think might be, I don't know if it's more serious or if it's on par, I can't decide, but it is how parents get told that, um, that if they baptize their children, sprinkle them, right? They would be included into God's covenant, and then they would essentially be saved, all right? That's putting it in a nutshell. And so the parents, with all the best intentions, parents love their children, and they love God, they want to follow God, they want to do what God wants them to do, so they go ahead with it, well, because the preacher said so. And you know what, the preacher knows the Bible, and so I trust that man, so I'll go with it. <laughs> they never try to look at it themselves, and then as that child grows up, and he starts to ask, ask questions about the Lord, they will tell him, oh, don't worry, you've been baptized, don't stress about it, you've been baptized. Daddy, daddy, this preacher came to me and said, I must be born again. Don't worry, you've been baptized. Don't worry about it. They think they're going to heaven. And then that, uh, that child closes his eyes for the last time in this world. And he opens them up in hell. Why? Because of their sin. That's why, that's why anybody goes to hell. It's because of their sin. They were never told about receiving the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. They've never been told that because they were baptized, you see. They were safe. That's what they've been told. That's what their parents were told. And their parents may have wanted to worship God in spirit by doing this thing. It wasn't mixed with truth. And the result is absolutely horrifying. Look at verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David 
with gladness. And it was so that when they bear the ark of the Lord, um, yeah, had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. They saw some, some special blessing happened um, to Obed-Edom because of the ark that was left there with him. And he probably took care of it, you know, made sure that nobody comes to steal it or whatever. Um, it must have been a great blessing, you know, because the news of this thing spread. And it even reached the king himself. This gave David new hope. He had new hope for this, call it project, that he wanted to do for the Lord. And that's when he finally got it. He finally understood what happened. And this detail we get from First Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 15. David went back to the Bible and he saw how God wanted them to carry the ark. We read there in, in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 1. And David made him houses of, in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched, a tent for, uh, pitched for it a tent. So he, he built a tabernacle right, for the ark. And then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. It's almost like David saying, Aha, now I know. All right. But that's exactly it. He was reminded in some way that, that God said that the ark should only be carried by the Levites. And so, what did David do? Did he stay angry at God? No, it doesn't look like it, really. Uh, he repented. <laughs> that's what he did. He changed his mind. At first he thought, well, it's good enough. Put it on a, a new cart. You know, I paid a lot of money for this cart. It's an it's a expensive cart. It's beautiful. We put it on this cart. It doesn't matter who tends to the ark, you know, who's around the ark and who touches it. That doesn't matter. I mean, we're having this great festival for the Lord. That's what he thought before. And now he says, oh, I need to align myself with the Word of God and do what, what He wanted me to do, worshiping Him in truth. Right? So he got the Levites together and he told them, let's go get the ark back. Let's go to Obed-Edom. <laughs> take his blessing away, I guess, now. <laughs> but let's, let's take the ark back. Let's bring it back to Jerusalem. And then he told them there in First, First Chronicles 15, verse 13, for, be, for because, he's, he's talking to the Levites, for because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order. So he's saying, God had a plan. God told us exactly how this thing should work. We didn't do it. We are wrong. That's what he's saying. It's not God that was wrong. It's not God that was unfair when he struck Uzzah down. As harsh as it might seem. But there was a due order for this thing that God put in place. And so they went. They brought back the ark. And they celebrated again. Every step of the way. And they, that music, that shouting, people were excited about this. And I just love this, right? David, the king, <laughs> was dancing before the ark of God during this procession. Isn't that amazing? You know, before, before this thing with Uzzah happened, we don't read about David dancing. He didn't dance there. There was only a bunch of music. Now, 
he's dancing. All right, what does that mean? Don't you dance, you know, when you're excited, when you're really excited, you know? Talking about the rugby, we're watching the World Cup, right? Isn't that what people do when the team scores? They dance, man. They shout for joy. That, that, that's the kind of emotion that you have there. <laughs> David danced before the ark because now he was not only worshiping God in spirit, but he did it in truth. And that's a great source of joy for any child of God is knowing that you are doing something that is pleasing the Lord. That, that, that is when you leap for joy. That is when you, when you dance, all right, for joy. It's when you know you're doing the will of God. Especially, I want to say, after you've already messed up like David did. And you see God taking you back. You know, it's like the prodigal son. The father is standing there with his arms wide open. Father is taking me back. You can, you, can, you can be joyful about that. You can know that when you're worshiping Him like this, in spirit and in truth, that, that uh, you are pleasing Him because you worship Him exactly like He said He needed to be worshipped. The way that we must worship Him. And you're not worshiping Him according to any other way, any other plan that any other man has made up to worship God. That's, that's just trash, right? That's done. We, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth, the truth of this Word. That's how we worship Him. That's where you will get your joy. And that is what we should be striving for, right? We should be striving for, when we worship God, we should, oh, we should worship Him in spirit. Absolutely. And you, if you've been in, neglecting that, maybe it's time to stir that thing up again in your heart. To worship God in spirit. We should worship Him with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with all of our strength. Everything. Everything. Absolutely. And we should also worship Him in truth. And you know what will happen? The when you get the truth of the Word stuck down deep there in your heart, and it's overflowing your heart, and it's in your mind, and you're thinking about it constantly. You're thinking about who God is, what He's doing, what has He done. All of these things. You're just consumed by it then it will overflow into this, what do you call it, this, this manifestation of joy. All right? Then you will also worship Him in spirit. It's, it's like water coming out of a spring and just you know, bursting out. That, that's exactly how this thing happens. But it starts there. It starts with getting the Word stuck in your heart, studying the Word, all right? and, 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 and letting that stir your emotions in the right way in the way that God ordained, the way that He wants it to. And you do what He said, and, and then you will please Him. Oh, what's better than pleasing God? There's nothing better. Nothing, nothing, nothing better than pleasing God. And then you will have this unspeakable joy inside of your heart, right? If, you, if you're worshiping like that, and if you're pleasing your Heavenly Father. Let's, let's bow our heads and we can pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you once again for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can know that we are not just, we're not just a bunch of robots that can just regurgitate a bunch of truths from your word. Though that may be fine, Lord, we want to love you. 
We want to be joyful about you. We want to have our joy in the Lord, in truth. We want that to inform our emotions. Please help us. Help us, Lord, to have our focus in the right place. Help us, Lord, to, as we heard this morning as well, to to take stock of our lives and, and to see where we started to go wrong. And that we can go back like we saw David doing, Lord, and saying, that's, that's exactly the point. That's the point where I lost that axe head. Lord, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for working in our hearts and in our lives. Please bring us back safely for the service this, this evening, Lord, but please keep on working in our hearts. Don't let the enemy steal away this, this word that has been sown in our hearts today. Don't let us get distracted, Lord. Please help us. Thank you for what you do and for being with us. Amen. Amen.